for supper from 8.30. Thanks, Susan. And from me also, thanks for coming. Um, it's very funny to be behind a lectern and you in pews. I'll do my best to be as holy as I possibly can be. I usually fail. Um, but I am nevertheless uh, kind of sincere, serious about what I do. Um, it always interests me to have this first moment of being in front of you because we're establishing a relationship. You're checking me out, seeing if I'm believable or uh, safe or whatever. You can see how that feels as I'm talking. You know, the mind is working really fast right now. And uh, I'm just pointing to that fact. And even if you don't think you're doing it, you're doing it because that's what we do as a species. So this is a very interesting moment. In the next few minutes, you will have built a little bit of a map of who I am. Maybe relax a little bit or maybe not, I don't know. And, um, you know, we'll kind of be in our exploration of this territory of relationality the social nature of the human species and the implications of this for um, not just Buddhist meditation, but for the practices and ways of understanding our own lives that can be deeply freeing. And we'll maybe even be able to have a sense of what that means, deeply freeing. So, as a way of finding our way to what I think of as the intrinsic human sensitivity, sensitivity of the organs, the eye, the ear, the body, the mind, and in some sense the power of the mind in forming how things feel right now and so how we act. I'd like to begin by inviting you uh, to a silence and a looking at your own experience right now. Um, you can have your eyes open or closed. Sometimes it's easier with your eyes closed. But the basic idea is perhaps to begin by sensing the posture of the body. Uh, what, very simple, what's the position of the body right now? And by this I just mean where is the head? Can you locate where your head is? You might check the face, the facial muscles, and see if there's tension or calm. sense the throat, the position of the neck, feel how uh, perhaps your shoulders are situated, is there tension or ease in the upright posture of the body, 
the torso upright, all those organs, the heart, lungs, and the belly, down through the pelvis and the body touching the chair, the position of the legs going out from the hips and bending at the knees, the feet perhaps touching the floor. So a simple sense of this body, not trying to make anything of it, just as it actually is. This position, this form, vibrating with sensitivity. Maybe you feel your dinner. Maybe you feel a certain mood. Maybe you feel the results of a busy day or a relaxed day, I don't know. All kind of bubbling up into this moment and it's like this, it's like this right now. And this form of the body sitting is a kind of an indicator of here, a sense of here. See if you can locate that sense of here. And maybe you can also locate a sense of now the mind constantly running on, but touching it now, and touching it again, and touching it again, until maybe there's a sense of moving with it, just a constant rolling forward of now. The body is sitting, the mind is observing itself. So there's a sense of witnessing your own experience right now. Not controlling it. Simply seeing things as they are. Perhaps curious. And I'd like to point to a particular feature of this moment, which is both different for each of us and entirely the same. And it's this. The sense of this experience right now, arising at the tip of the whole life that you've lived so far. So maybe you're noticing, as I said, something just like you feel this way after having had dinner or having had exercise or not having had exercise or the conversations you had today. 
or how much time you've spent on the car or on the beach or things that are happening in your families. How about from yesterday? Yesterday is imprinted on this moment too. Sensing perhaps as you go back this moment being uh, on the crest of a wave of your young adulthood, your childhood, of your genetics, and it feels like this right now. Just see if you can sense that emergence of experience at the tip of your life. Each of us with our own details. All of us in this shared human experience of this moment being conditioned by what came before. And there's knowing it. I'm just pointing you towards it, that you know it intuitively yourself. I'm just reminding you. This whole life, decades and decades of it. And then there's this moment. And this moment can be known. I'd like to point you towards that sensitivity of knowing this moment. Wow. I can sense the workings of the body-mind right now. and inquire, if you will, into that sensitivity, how it is you're knowing the mind, how it is you're knowing the body, not technically, just that it's happening. What's the texture of that experience of knowing the body-mind? Inquiring into the fundamental emergence of experience. And there's a certain alertness, a delicate alertness that you're manifesting, you're, you're doing right now. It's very beautiful. See what that's like. how clear and sensitive this knowing can be. The sensitivity of knowing your own experience, the sensitivity to your own, the sensations of the body, the sensitivity to knowing the mind, the mind knowing itself. Wow, that's very delicate. 
And maybe you, you would notice now the sensitivity of the ears to the sounds of this speaking voice. The fact that you, without even knowing the words I'm speaking, you're knowing that it's the voice of a male, the voice of someone from North America by the accent. You're knowing something of my human history by how I'm speaking, by the tone and the music of this voice. You don't have to try to know this, you just know it, because you grew up learning how to do this. That powerful, powerful brain learning every day with every human encounter. And you're hearing inside my body with the tensions of my diaphragm as I speak and the tensions of my vocal folds as I speak. You're listening to this body. In the same way you're listening to your own mind. To your own body. So astute, so clear, so simple, so sensitive. There's no magic involved other than, of course, the astonishing fact of the human complexity. And you're hearing the specific language I'm using. Language, using, I, you are hearing. All these pointers that are allowing us to engage like this. How quickly, how easily you understand what I'm saying and you look at your own mind and you follow my suggestions just because of the brilliance that we share. So, as you extend this sensitivity from internal to this body sitting, to your own mind, that sensitivity will continue, but you might also, if you care to, open your eyes and actually look at me and notice that the same thing is going on now, that you're seeing me and you're assessing, you're reading me. Part of what you're reading is really basic, like, am I safe with this person? Because again, that's where we start as animals. This is where we start. But you're also seeing in my face and maybe in my gestures certain things, whatever they are. And as I'm using language to speak to you, and all of the sensitivity of the ear and the amazing processing of the perceptual systems of the brain to understand 
the music of the voice and the language and what have I been talking about? I've been talking about the mind and inviting you to look at your own mind and your own body, right? That's what I've been saying. So something of my experience of looking at my own mind that guided what I was saying to you, you know, experience, I've done this stuff, is conveyed to you and you try it out, right? That's what you just did, you tried it out. You saw for yourself, wow. I really am sensitive. This life really is conditioned. All through language. I mean, language and music and so on. So something from my mind, my subjective experience, is being offered and transferred, if you will, to your minds to check out for yourself. You take it in and you do what you do with it. And uh, I find that astonishing. I find that really astonishing that, that we can do that, that we can communicate at that level or any level. Please pass the salt amazes me. You know, really, it's like there was a thought in here, a desire for salt. I said, please pass the salt. You understood that. You handed me the salt. That's mind-to-mind that's -mind transfer, you know. It's pretty basic, but it's quite astonishing. So just as this sensitivity of the body-mind is a basic fact, the orientation of this sensitivity and the application of this sensitivity to relationship, to interpersonal contact, is a particular and extraordinarily powerful uh, engagement of our intelligence and our sensitivity. This is not an accident. This is as much a result of evolution as is our ability to perceive different colors and to hear spatially and so on and so forth. All of the mechanisms of the body-mind that evolved so this species could survive. So we not only needed to be able to tell the red berry from the green background or the brown nut from the green background, we also needed to be able to perceive is this person safe? Is the alpha male angry and is he going to kill me or what? We have to read, in this case, probably his face, but we also have to read the face of our mothers and our mothers need to read our faces and we have built 
this over over the course of evolution evolved this incredible sensitivity that has that is represented through brain structures through certain kinds of neurons it's represented through these capacities to basically mind read through seeing each other's faces and hearing each other's voices and that kind of communication was the basis, for example, of families, the family unit, and the tribal unit, and the human species evolving to survive by working together. The tribe who could communicate well in their warrior activities passed on their genetic material more successfully than the tribe that couldn't communicate well because the one that communicates fights better. It's not the prettiest picture, but it's part of the picture. And the humans and the tribes and the families that cared for their young and cared for each other compassionately, generously, kindly, grew and survived. Those were the genes that were passed on, just as much as survival of the fittest. So the urge of individual success and the urge of social altruism function in parallel, and in some sense, some would say, evolutionary theorists would say, well, that seems to be one of the real dynamics that forms the human experience. Me or we. So I want to jump forward a little bit. I think I'll jump all the way to our culture and society today, and then we can backtrack a little bit. So we've evolved quite a complex set of lifestyles here in our modern world. We're applying all of this incredible intelligence and sensitivity to creating necessities like Facebook and Twitter. And uh, we are uh, also, uh, we've managed to create modern phenomena like traffic jams and office politics and uh, global warf warfare and you know, all, all kinds of innovations. But on a day-to-day -day basis, We've created a society with an immense amount of complexity and tension. And I just touch on that because I take that as fairly obvious. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to waste a lot of time on it, frankly. But what we have seen is in response to this confusing 
and uh, a life that has distanced us from this kind of uh, intimacy with experience where we're always so frantic that we don't feel our bodies, we don't sense into nature as much as we used to, and so on, is an upsurge in the recent years in an interest in mindfulness. And it's gotten really to be a big deal. I mean, I've been doing this, you know, meditation stuff for decades, and in the last 10 years, all of a sudden, it's very groovy to be doing it or something like that. And there's a lot, you know, it's in all the magazines, it's in all the science, lots of science articles and lots of arguments on the internet and all kinds of things. Just because there's a certain intrinsic power to the mind knowing itself and it can be applied all over the place. So the reason I jumped all the way forward is because in some sense I would like to frame this movement of mindfulness and a lot of people's uh, draw to meditation and related practices in terms of um, uh, reclaiming or getting back in touch with exactly this intelligence that you were touching in your mind seeing itself. That there's a certain uh, intimacy with our own internal experience and it's intimately connected with an intimacy with our senses where we actually are attuned to when light touches the eye, sound touches the ear, things touch the body. We become attuned to how ideas touch the mind and there's a yearning for that kind of immediacy. But when people sit down to meditate, or practice mindfulness, if you will, they find, wow, my mind is a mess. It's all over the place. And if you think about it, right, it's like uh, we spent our whole lives with the mind going wherever it wants and all of a sudden we sit down and we expect it to just be still because we said so. But meanwhile, these neural networks have a life of their own, right? So the mind gets crazy, it gets busy, and everybody gets all upset. They think, oh, I'm a bad meditator because meditation is thought of as, oh, got to get perfectly still. But one of the problems of plucking out mindfulness or plucking out meditation from this bigger picture is that we end up with these kind of superficial judgments, superficial understandings of what mindfulness is or can be. And uh, cause ourselves a lot of grief. So, if I pause now, you can check this yourself. 
I'll pause and just see if your mind wants to be perfectly still. It's like having an engine idling in some sense. Like, can you feel how the mind wants some kind of food, right? It's like, give me something. Give me something to work with here, Greg. Okay, this is a talk. I'm being very patient. Entertain me. Say something. And the stirring of the whole of your past coming into this moment, creating the next possible set of thoughts and reactions. It's like a, perhaps, I don't know how you experience, for some people it might be really chaotic and rough. For some it might be like a shimmering of the mind. We might each have somewhat different experiences, but the fact of the mind's ongoing, outpouring, tumbling forward sense of I am, I am, I am. What now? What now? What now? So meditation practice can be rather than forcing the mind to some kind of artificial stillness, it can be a, a um, coming into this intimacy with how is the mind, how is the body now? Just a relationship with it, a knowing it. And if this knowing gets, if the mind gets still enough, if the mindfulness gets really bright, and the concentration really sharp, still, we can begin to know underneath all that surface noise. See the turmoil and even the turmoil begins to release in a profound way. So, how do we put these things together? This intrinsic relationality and this understanding of a yearning for intimacy with experience, for the mind to know itself, perhaps a yearning for calm, perhaps a seeking for the wisdom underneath. Well, to start with, all of that conditioning that creates the sense of this revving engine of the mind tremendous amount of that conditioning is exactly what arises through our social and interpersonal contacts. We're so deeply conditioned that how many of our thoughts are about other people or how I stand in the world of other people. So built in to the churning itself is this relational component and it can be very noisy 
And what I'd like to suggest is that this intrinsic relationality, this basic fact, this evolutionary fact of our sensitivity to others that causes us to be so uh, tender and activated by each other, that causes the mind to be so stirred up, often hurt, is built in, first of all, for also survival reasons, like loneliness. Loneliness hurts, right? I mean, it hurts. It's physically painful and emotionally draining. That's a good thing, right? Because in the olden days, if you were out on your own, you wouldn't survive. To long for your tribe, to long for your family, was a survival necessity. So loneliness hurting is just as adaptive as it hurting when you stick your hand into a fire, right? You, you withdraw from the fire. You don't want the loneliness. You don't want the tension and the anger. And the mind, I mean the body is corroded over time by tension and anger. So we have all of these in, in, internal dynamics where we're so sensitized that it's part of this revving of the engine that makes mindfulness practice, that makes meditation difficult to see beneath the tangle. I'd like to suggest to you that it is this very sensitivity that can be applied to the development and the strengthening of mindfulness, to the stabilizing of concentration, thereby being, becoming a means in interpersonal meditation for cutting through this tangle the revving engine of the mind and all of its urges maybe we can come, as we were saying, to see clearly, to stabilize the surface noise and see underneath. So how might that work? What might that look like? Well, for starters, if you look at traditional meditation practices as a guide, and these practices have been tested over thousands of years. This is not something certainly that I've made up. But if you look at the traditional meditation practices, what you see is a whole variety of means for observing the body, frameworks for observing the body, frameworks for observing the mind. For example, the breath or walking meditation or ways of observing one's own thoughts, ways of noticing the mind states and emotions, and lots and lots of techniques. And of course, you can take concentrative techniques like staring at candle flames or at mandalas, you know, images and so on. There's all kinds of practices to help stabilize the mind. But the kinds of practices I'm going to refer to aren't the concentrative practices, it's the insight practices, the 
practices that let you see into the process nature, the changing nature of experience. And that's where you have the simple things like the breath, the body, the mind states, and so on. So we have these methods, and usually people go and they sit individually. Maybe they have their hands in a certain position, or they have a shawl that they like, or there's an uh, image of a white wall, or a Buddha image, or something that supports their pr practice. But basically what they're doing is in that moment saying, coming back, coming back to the breath, or coming back to the bodily sensations again and again. And some people uh, do teach the practices of looking at the mind states themselves, and so on. Well, what if you were to do a practice like that, we were to do a practice like that, but rather than just my sitting here with my eyes closed, let's say I was sitting here with one of you, and we had this agreement. Let's be, both be mindful together. Let's sort of remember to come back to awareness here and now together. And uh, in fact, maybe we even talk about how's your, how's your awareness right now? What's the experience of mindfulness now? Oh, well, I was just actually just thinking about where I had to go when we were done, frankly. Well, okay, but now with you looking at me and me looking at you and there being this sense of how, how's the awareness now? You know, that's the, uh, the underlying question that we're being in together. How is awareness right now? And by the fact of the activation of all of these social circuits of the body-mind, this sense of looking together at the awareness is actually re-stimulating us into the moment with that power of that uh, 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 deep social um, conditioning of paying attention, of my sensitivity to seeing human eyes and what it's like having them looking at me and so on. So let me take another step in that. What if we have this basic practice and there's this pausing each moment, re-establishing mindfulness, and we come together in that but now we also harness this power of language that we touched earlier, you know, where when I say something or you say something to me, you can convey something that's in your mind. I can maybe get it. And that draws me into the moment. And now let's take as our topic of conversation the deepest inquiries into the human experience. Let's take one that we can all understand immediately, like death. Right? Common to all religious systems is a 
investigation, a contemplation, a facing of our of human mortality. But now we're doing this together with this agreement. Let's let's cultivate the mindfulness. Let's develop the concentration. But let's put it to work. Let's check out our experience of uh, let's say fear of death or a longing to escape from this life or whatever comes up in that moment that we talk. And now as I share with you, let's say something that comes up about the death of my father or the near death of someone I love dearly, something like this, or I touch in a moment this sense of all that's left undone in my life right now. I'm not ready to die, something like that. And you're listening and now the depth of, you know, the shared human experience, in this case mortality, comes together with this mindfulness and concentration. And the combination is riveting, very powerful, potent. I could give you another example just to give you a sense of a direction that this goes. Let's say that what we're contemplating is, again, I'm drawing now from Buddhist psychology, is something as simple as superiority conceit. You know, this tendency to judge oneself in relation to others as superior. And now I'm practicing with this pause, and, and so are you, and I touch into my own mind, where is this conceit? How is it manifesting? And maybe, it's, maybe I even see it manifesting with you. Or maybe a memory comes up and I pause before I launch into the story of it. I touch with mindfulness the experience of my own conceit. Ouch. But there it is. And you're listening. And because, again, our basic contract is we're meditating together. We're developing this mindfulness. And the meditation includes this language. It includes this contemplation. And now you share, if you care to, no one ever has to, what you've noticed. But maybe the next contemplation is inferiority conceit. Conceit. Still self-obsession, right? But me, I've done my comparison job and I come out inferior this time. But it's still a self-obsession with my inferiority. And I pause and you pause. What would be spoken? And in this moment, you see, we're working at the level of the content, in this case, self-obsession. And maybe we can find some useful discoveries together.
but we're also functioning at the pure level of developing mindfulness, investigation, concentration, tranquility, equanimity. As we touch, and this conversation, again, draws us in because it's real, it's human. And in such a moment, with the pauses, with the support of practice, we go not just to a good conversation, but into true meditation. The concentration can get really high. The awareness of the fabricating processes of I and me and you and all of it can become known. And the power of the mindfulness and concentration deepens the efficacy of the contemplation. And the contemplation deepens the concentration and the mindfulness. As you might expect, I don't know, there's a point at which the concentration, the mindfulness, are so strong with two or more people in practice that the conceiving necessary for the speaking, the agitation in some sense necessary for the speaking, actually goes below a threshold and we don't speak so much. But there's still complete alertness and a sense of the intimacy with the nature of one's own mind, but also of the between, what Martin Buber spoke about as this between, this relationship itself becomes an object of concentration, becomes something that can be known. So in the ways that I was just describing to you, this practice of inside dialogue, which has certain meditation instructions like pause and relax and open, actually provides a pipeline, a conduit between the meditative qualities of the mind and the penetrating teachings on the nature of the mind that the Buddha offered the nature of clinging, the nature of grasping and hunger, the nature of altruism and compassion and freedom. Those come completely into the uh, sensitivity and the, frankly, the brilliance of each of our minds, which is naturally unleashed when mindfulness and concentration are strong. So in that sense, it can be a penetrating liberative practice. Why? And this is where I go back to where we were. This sensitivity that each of us is born into in this life, it's just a fact that over time, 
we tend to get calloused so that we can get by in the world. Perhaps you've heard of a book by um, Aldous Huxley called The Doors of Perception. It was quite, quite famous. Um, what he did was uh, took mescaline and had someone be with him and he was saying his experience and it was being written down. And uh, then he reflected on that uh, at some length. It's a very short book, but it's quite penetrating. And he had all kinds of experiences of the, of the complexity and brilliance of drawing from uh, pure sensory experience. And he was very carefully watching it. And what he concluded was that we have this capacity, this kind of sensitivity to nature, to life, to sen you know, all kinds of sensations all the time. But we uh, have a kind of a reducing valve, it was his language, a reducing valve on this perceptual flow, on this sensory input, because we can't bear it. It's too much. And when you stop to consider how physically sensitive the eye is, how physically sensitive the ear is, the tongue, how individual molecules touch the nose, how physically sensitive this skin is, and these guts, and how sensitive the internal mind and powerful the processing system and that all of these sense doors are happening are activated virtually all of the time it's a fire hose and we're just trying to you know get through our lives so naturally there's this reducing valve that lets us say oh person 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 now next thing you know, go on, tree. We don't even see the details of the tree. We got what we needed, and off we go. So what I've noticed in this practice as a result of inside dialogue practice is that we have the exact same thing happening with what I call a social reducing valve, where we have this incredible sensitivity that when you meditate with another person, is. <laughs> is indescribably uh, 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 delicate and revealing and beautiful and weird and unusual and uh, kind of inspiring and maybe even scary. There's a whole lot of things you could say about it, but we have that sensitivity and we reduce it down to, you know, to the chunks that let us get by. So if we're looking at this tangle of the mind that comes up from all of this interpersonal sensitivity, come on, the tangles and the hurt in our families, the tangles and the hurt in our workplaces, the tangles and the hurt in our larger culture, the whole legal systems, the prison systems, the, the war systems, all the political systems, 
and just the ways we see and don't see each other on the street, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's enough to break your heart how much suffering there is. And internally, so much suffering and this lack of, uh, this loss of connection with the world that I was talking about earlier. So if we want to cut through that, if we've turned to something like mindfulness, and we want to really come into a, a new quality of experience of life that's not tangled, that's not driven by uh, just the automatic results of all our prior experience, that we can bring in a quality of intelligence that comes from this mindfulness, that comes from being um, uh, free from the trance of desire and fear. Such a thing is possible. So invoking the power of traditional solitary practices can be powerfully uh, catalyzed and, and uh, amplified by invoking the power of relational meditation practices. And that's exactly what I'm spending my time evolving, teaching, investigating. There's so much I don't know, but it has been an interesting ride so far. So I think I'll uh, pause here, and it would be much more interesting at this point, I think, to interact with you. Perhaps there's questions um, that have come up. I don't know, but I'm willing to take a chance and stop talking. And if you want to ask a question, uh, I'll repeat it so everybody can hear, assuming I can hear. And it doesn't have to be a question, actually. It might just be an observation. snide remark. I don't know. We'll see what's there. There's a guided meditation, and then you all take turns doing what? Uh, we take turns doing guiding. You take turns guiding meditation. Oh, uh -huh. right. I get it. Yeah. Well, you know, there's a there's a relational aspect of meditating individually in the same room a kind of support that's offered just by all being together, for, sh for sure. It's not what I refer to as relational meditation in the sense that um, uh, it doesn't specifically recruit 
the relationship in service moment by moment of the meditative qualities of the mind. You do have that one-way relationship of who's ever guiding the meditation and others are listening to that. So there's a, it's not really a flow, but it is a kind of support. But um, when people meditate in inside dialogue, by the way, on retreat or you know, even in, in a weekly group or something, there's still the foundation of traditional silent individual practice where you can just touch and remember how the mind can know itself, calm down enough just to get past some of the surface noise. So that's still there too. But then when you move into groups of two or three or four, or depends on how big your group is, um, so let's just, for, for simplicity's sake, say it's just two people, right? That the relational aspect of it is actually a dynamic part of the meditation practice, right? So we're both exploring either mindfulness itself or concentration itself or some quality of the mind here and now and cultivating it by, by naming it. Or, as I was saying, we're bringing in these contemplations drawn from the Buddha's quite astonishing understanding of the workings of the mind and saying, let's look at this, just this one piece of it. And as we do that, we're pausing, which means establishing mindfulness. We're intentionally relaxing the body, which is a starting point for tranquility of, of, the, of the body and mind but we're also uh, engaging in a kind of a receptive and uh, accepting relationship with, which, with whatever's present. And in the guideline open, we're actually attuning to the relational quality itself, how I can be mindful externally of you, I can be mindful internally, and I can be aware of both at the same time and the sort of the whole relational experience. And uh, there can al there's also, as part of the practice, an intentional attuning to change, to impermanence. This, the, the guideline is, is uh, called trust emergence, but it's a kind of a surrendering to the flux of experience, a kind of a attuning and noticing it. And then finally, listen deeply and speak the truth are actual meditation practices, not just communication tools. So they're, you know, it's deeply tied in with the development of mindfulness and concentration and so on. So it's when those things are evoked and holding the meditation practice that we can actually touch even into the story, even into the conditioned mind and know how to let go and drop beneath the whole fabricating process that's usually the basis of conversation. You know, where we're stimulating each other, entertaining each other. Yeah, 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 thanks. Where people are 
small group working on a particular problem, like you're working on a particular new uh, development or you're working on a particular technical problem. And one of the key things of advancing that group is um, similar to meditation that you, you relax and you're leaving out all other things. You are focusing on a yeah. particular problem and together by doing that um, and particularly listening to other people's focusing, the solutions start to come much quicker. Yeah. Because, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a, I guess a calmness because you're leaving out other distractions and you are, I think the key thing is, is listening to everybody mm-hmm. and letting just letting all things come. Yeah. Not, not judging. Yeah, yeah. Just letting them all roll. However, in that situation, uh, and we're talking about guidance, Bruce mentioned, there is a definite guidance because you're going through a journey, you're going through a process of solving a series of problems, or, or maybe even those problems um, link up in a particular way you weren't expecting because you just, it's, 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 it's actually developing as it goes along because you are listening and, and, and the solutions don't always come in the way nicely in order, they come in whatever way they come because you are you know, being quite like open-minded to multiple possibilities. But in that situation, of course it's not meditation, but there's a definite guidance there which is the problem that you're working on. So what I was, I guess, what, after all that, the question I have is, you're talking about the interrelation between people and they're talking about a particular subject. But I'm wondering, what is what is God? It's like, you know, where does the path go? Like, where, what what do you, mm-hmm. do you just let it roll? Very good, and, and very good question. Yeah. So if I try to summarize this, if I do a bad job, I hope you forgive me. Um, he was saying that uh, in group processes, where let's say in a work environment or something, a group comes together to solve a problem or to invest to investigate a creative new solution or something and there can be a lot of concentration there can be a uh, letting all ideas come so there's a sense of it being uncensored and open um, and there's uh, uh, can be a lot of creativity that comes up out of this and uh, uh, but it's not meditation he was saying and that uh, so what is the guidance in some sense, it's like, what is the secret sauce that makes it meditation? This is, is part of the question that I'm hearing. I, I, I was thinking more of the guidance of uh, where are you going with Yeah, right. Fabulous, fabulous question, where are you going? The language that I use for that, I'm going to introduce here because it's a pretty useful, clear language, and it has to do with the word intention. What is the intention? What is the direction of the mind as you do this kind of thing? And it's really astute that you bring that up because in Buddhist psychology or in the Buddhist teachings of the path, this quality of intention is a big deal. It's a very big deal. So to put it simply, if we did all this great stuff and our intention was primarily how can we make a better system for torturing other human beings, then there's this underlying cruelty and greed and so on and so forth. If what we're doing is trying to build uh, a better bridge uh, 
and thereby serving our city and uh, doing a good job in our work and having a lot of integrity, obviously there's, uh, you know, there's the intentions of service and kindness and so on. And in, in these various cases, there's probably all kinds of sub-intentions like um, participating to make money, to have a good lifestyle, to have a nice car. So even though you're building a bridge, you're also functioning from a desire for to make a good living. And so there's a kind of um, uh, you know, consumer aspect. It's just built into most, usually the fee-for-service economy. Uh, and in the meditation tradition that, of course, is where I come from, is the only one that I can speak to um, with any integrity. Uh, first of all, uh, just to address the consumer thing, meditation is freed from the consumer aspect because the teachings aren't sold. It's not a, I'm not a professional. I travel all over the world teaching. If people want to offer support to me to continue teaching, they do. If they don't, I still teach until I can't anymore because I have to go get a job as a plumber or something, you know. So one thing that's been removed that is different from some of those situations is removing the commerce aspect. But more importantly, this question of intention is the intention coming from, for example, in some real fundamental way, cruelty or harmlessness, you know, kindness or meanness and things like that. But one of the defining characteristics of the Buddha's teaching on sort of this path of disentangling this sensitive and often troubled mind is an inclination towards releasing rather than getting. Because there's a basic insight that comes when the mind does get still, which is that the body, the mind, is driven, absolutely driven by hungers to get and have and to try and get it just right, to find the comforts of the body, to find the pleasures of the body, to avoid the pain, to get the accolades, to build up the self, and all of the things that, that we take as pretty much normal are seen because of the sensitivity of the meditating mind. You see underneath and you see the, the, the tension and fear that runs through what might be otherwise seen as, uh, if with a more crude vision, as a kind of a normal, happy life. It's what Freud called normal suffering, you know? I help people get rid of the extreme suffering so they can get back to their normal suffering, right? And, and I, agree with, I agree with his assessment, and the Buddha had the same basic assessment. So then the intention of meditation, you, again, I really want to note that's a really good observation. What is the intention? What defines the direction or purpose? And this sense of disentangling the tangle and eventually coming to your own direct experience that, says, that recognizes 
that no matter how much I feed these hungers, it's never going to end. And when you see that, and you touch the incredible happiness, I mean, you experience a lightness in the body and a joy and clarity of the mind when you begin to let go of that feeding process. It's beautiful, and it's, it's, it's actually, um, in, it, it can be literally blissful when the mind gets very relaxed. Not just like nothing, not just like a flat nothing, but really beautiful. So that turns the heart towards this kind of freedom, towards this kind of simplicity and relinquishment. And that then is the, that turning is the intending, is the guiding of the mind in that direction. And then your practice has a real sense of clarity, purpose, verve, um, without which it could easily be derailed into kind of a meditating so I can get better at doing my work and getting my new car. Meditating so I can have a little bit less tension, kind of like palliating or medicating a life that is basically unwell. So, very profound question, thank you. So two questions, are we talking about uh, uh, meditating just with two people or is it different than that? And also how did the practice develop? Um, meditating with just one other person is uh, probably the simplest and most basic configuration, but it is by no means limited to that. You can do the meditation practice in groups of three, four, ten, twenty. Uh, most of my retreats, I would say probably 60 to 70 percent of the time is in pairs, dyads, and then uh, uh, let's say 10 percent in threes, 10 percent in fours, and the rest in a large group. But that's, you know, there's different. Um, values that come out with different kinds of configurations. That's part of, frankly, learning how to teach it and learning what's needed by the group and so on. Um, and as to how it developed, I, I, if it's okay, I'll give you a very uh, profoundly abbreviated version because um, I, you know, I just don't know how interesting it is in the long run, but um, or how useful, but. I was uh, actually in my PhD program studying um, any number of things, but I took a real interest in, in dialogue. Uh, there was a physicist named David Bohm who was uh, suggesting a form of dialogue that he developed in part through his own thoughts about consciousness. He was a, actually a, a quantum physicist. Um, 
and uh, in part through his work with a, another spiritual teacher, a guy named Krishnamurti. And um, so I began to study that. And a colleague in the program uh, I was in also took an interest in this kind of dialogue. At the time, I was teaching her insight, Buddhist insight meditation, Vipassana, uh, just as a separate thing that she was interested in. I was a teacher, so I, you know. So as we explored the dialogue together, we both naturally brought in the mindfulness and so on to the dialogue, and it was like something really clear and sharp and amazing was known to both of us. Um, we eventually uh, developed a formal practice of insight dialogue online because it was a distance program about, you know, three quarters distance, one quarter face to face. So we had to do a lot of stuff at a distance. So we developed online insight dialogue. And uh, then after we finished that work, I continued working with it and, and developing in, you know, it's been a couple decades now. So it's really changed a great deal in, you know, in more ways than is worth talking about now. But um, it just emerged from that spark of two people meeting with mindfulness. Yeah, and I'm following that fragrance, you know. Yeah. In, in fact, the, what's that? Water down the plug hole. Okay. <laughs> oh. oh yeah, no, it's okay. Go ahead, and, and then I'll go over there. So how does this relate to the encounter movement and the kind of two or more people being very much in the moment together in, in those times? And what exposure did I have to that? Uh, well, my primary exposure to that was that my parents were very involved in the encounter movement and went to Esalen and worked with Fritz Perls and the Gestalt stuff and all that kind of thing. But. Um, more relevant, you know, if I were to just immediately cut to the chase, I'd say yes, there's uh, certain pieces that are in similar, but I call back two points. One is this question of intention, and the intention when you, under, when you not only understand but have some di direct experience of the Buddha's teachings on liberation, it's very different than just 
kind of uh, cathartic emotional stuff and so on. The sense of uh, freeing the mind at the level of refinement that the Buddha was talking about is, relatively speaking, supra-mundane to uh, most Western psychology, if not all. So I'll start there, um, which leads me to the next point. In Insight Dialogue, we not only have the power of relationship, which is the encounter stuff you're talking about, Wood, and the power of the mindfulness and concentration, which the encounter movement would have a piece of. It's much, much more precise and highly developed drawing from Buddhist practice, because I have a lot of practice, and I specifically am teaching meditation. And so I teach practices for developing not just mindfulness, but mindfulness, concentration, tranquility, equanimity, investigation, joy. I mean, it's a really uh, nuanced path that is, again, thousands of years of quite uh, brilliant and beautiful development. But in addition to those meditative qualities of the mind and the power of relationship, you have the power of this, these Buddhist teachings of the Dhamma that we're talking about. So our conversation is supported and guided by a root wisdom tradition that you don't have to believe, it's not like a religious system, but that says, look over here, look at your mind this way and see what you see. That's enough. You don't have to believe it, but then we do that and we see something about the nature of our hunger to escape this, this sensitivity we were born with or the nature of grasping and how that creates a sense of self and all of these subtle, beautiful teachings on the, how the mind is entrapped and how it can become free. And so that's an intrinsic part of the practice that really does make a difference. And maybe one more question. Yeah. yeah. My question, when initially we sat down, you were saying how amongst the first things we, we were looking at you and uh, working out whether it was safe. And my question, in the, the process of the dialogue, in a dialogue, a dialogue would go quite deep, be quite intimate, and a person could be quite vulnerable. What, what's the, um, how does it play out if a person starts to pick up signs that sure. are unsafe? Got it. So what is the, how is safety maintained when safety is breached? What happens? Well, Yeah, yeah, thank you. Um, okay, so first of all, when, uh, when you have, let's say, a weekly group, and you're coming for a couple of hours every week or every other week of practice, um, you need to establish 
a container, an ethical container, an ethical environment. And that's given a lot of attention, at least by any group that I would be associated with and condone. And, um, uh, and there is always, in addition to this safety, this safe container of, of, uh, of ethics, the explicit understanding you don't say anything you don't want to say. It's not a cathartic practice, it's a meditation practice. And the workings are much more subtle than just having to spill everything. And still, as you note, there is a vulnerability that can arise because you do say things in, in practice that uh, can be quite uh, things you wouldn't say to most people. Um, one thing in weekly groups and this kind of thing that makes that less dangerous, if you will, or less sensitive than retreat is, a, is simply that the level of mindfulness and concentration is going to be less than at retreat. And so it's a little bit less of a problem. Um, so I'm going to come back to how it's held after I say something about retreat. In retreat, Likewise, you have right from the get-go, very first day, very first talk, you address what in Buddhist terminology is sila, or ethical conduct, in that moment of practice, which includes simple things like confidentiality and you know, appropriate sexual behavior and so on and so forth. And um, also basic almost common sense things like, you know, you're not here giving advice to each other and all this kind of stuff. You're just here meditating and investigating the human experience. Um, and then the, whether it's the retreat situation or a group situation, it's being um, looked after by the convener. In the case of a retreat, you have a seasoned teacher. None of the people that I've trained to teach have less than, oh, maybe seven to 10 years training with me, and uh, let alone all the rest of their background. So it's a very serious thing. It's not a, we, we, we take our charge seriously. Um, but even in a weekly group or a, a, you know, a, every other week, or a month or whatever. Um, the person who's convening the group, likewise, is very clear about the intention of the group, that it's not a psychotherapeutic group, that it is a meditation practice, and that the contemplations that are chosen reflect that, and that the quality of practice and social encounter reflects that. That said, there's never any guarantees. We're sensitive creatures, you know. Um, probably the best uh, benchmark I can offer you is that in the many years I've been teaching this and in the many groups that there are, you know, around the world, um, I am not aware of any uh, serious ethical breaches. Um, the 
maybe we're just lucky. I, I, I can't say. I don't say it with pride or anything like that because I don't know, you know. But um, there is so much attention given to the nature of the teachings and the, and the purpose of the practice that it doesn't tend to slide into the, you know, the kind of things that one can easily imagine when there's this intimate eye contact and so on. Interestingly enough, the power of the mindfulness that develops when two people are practicing together, the strength of the concentration can itself be, be destabilizing because we're just not used to being deeply calm and it feels weird, it really does. We're not used to the dissolving of the sense of that very tense me at the center of the world. And when we meet the world in, without that tension to hold us apart, that can be uh, disorienting. But I would suggest there's no true growth into a new stage of a new, a new um, quality of experience without there being disorientation. Because it's usually our tension and our limiting views that orient us, that, that make us feel stable and like we know what's going on. So if we're not willing to take that chance, it's a problem. You know, we're, we're just going to be stuck in the small systems of our own thought. Um, but I can also, I guess I'll just close by saying I absolutely respect the possibilities of um, unwise engagement based around this practice the way people have unwisely engaged just about every single thing that has existed on this planet. You know, and so yeah, I, I don't feel immune or anything like that. So thanks for the question. It's always good to keep it real. Yeah. I hope that that's uh, been a useful way to spend an hour and a half for you. You are now an hour and a half closer to death. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.